following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Aaron and I joke all the time that we're, uh, we're pretty boring people. In fact, we're very boring people. And some of you hear that and you're like, well, that's not nice. You shouldn't say that, that you're boring people. It's okay. We both know it. We both admit to it. One of the things we do that's very boring is when we put the kids down for bed at night, a lot of times we're, we're going to sit and, and we might watch a show or two before we go to bed. We have like four TV shows that we watch, and we just watch them over and over and over again. Like we've seen the same series of shows like five, six, seven times because we know we like it, and we just don't want to invest the effort in finding something else. So we, like boring people, will watch the same thing over and over and over again. And here's the thing. We've gotten to the point with most of these shows that we know exactly what's going to happen. I know the storylines. I know where, where every joke is in the show because we always watch comedies because we don't want to watch anything that gets us worked up before bed because we're boring and we go to bed real early and we got to be able to just lay down and go to sleep, right? So I know where every joke is. We know all this stuff. But still, and it doesn't matter if we've seen the show seven times, there will come a point where something will happen and I will just bust up laughing. Like, I, 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 I kind of knew where everything was going, but I forgot about this one joke. I forgot about this one thing in the grand story that gets us from A to B and it just cracks me up. See, a lot of times this happens for all of us in different ways. We know how the story goes. We know the big picture, but we forget the details that get us from point A to point B. Last week, if you were here with us, we, we talked about uh, Esau, and we talked about the empire that Esau built as the nation of, of Edom, and how he built this empire on the grounds of success and control. He built it by his best efforts, by the work that he could do, and, and he did a great job. He built this kingdom, this empire, but we know that when a kingdom, when an empire is built on the grounds of success and control, we know where that ultimately ends up, don't we? It ends up in destruction. Now we know that, but how many times do we forget that and keep moving through? We forget about the details along the way. And, and, and in the same way, we know how Esau's story is going to end up, but how do we get there? And we're going to talk about this today in the book of Obadiah. And just as we see this reminder of, of, of how Esau's story ends up, by his best efforts, by the best he can contribute to his life, to his family, to his empire, when we see where he ends up, it's an incredible reminder to you and me about the undulation of our own stories and our own faith. It's a reminder not to get lost in the beginning and the end, but to remember the journey ahead. So the question I want you to ask yourself before we dive into the book of Obadiah is this. How does the end of Obadiah's story remind us of the tragedy, the pitfalls, and the joy of our own stories? Just a quick little bit of background 
on this book of Obadiah, in case you haven't been studying it, you know, over the last 20 years or whatever. The book of Obadiah, shortest book in the Old Testament. Only 21 verses in the whole book. Shortest book of the Old Testament. When it was written is debated. You'll find a couple different theories. It was likely written sometime after the Israelites were defeated by Babylon and carried into captivity, which happened somewhere around 600 B.C., What we get in this very short 21 verses is Obadiah, a prophet of God, who's giving a judgment against the nation of Edom, right? If you were here last week, you know when we say Edom, we mean Esau's family, Esau's descendants, the nation that comes from Esau, the twin brother of Jacob, the twin brother of Israel, right? So here we get this this judgment against Edom. And it comes at the end of a a history between these two families, Israel and Edom, that is marred by conflict. In fact, we could go through through scripture and find a couple of different places where there are some significant conflict between Edom and Israel. One of the most uh, prevalent ones comes in, in Numbers chapter 20. In Numbers chapter 20, the Israelites are, are, uh, are, uh, are coming out of their, their 40 years in the wilderness. They're making their move towards the land of Canaan. And they come to the land of Edom. And in Numbers chapter 20, verse 17 through 20, Moses speaking here, he speaks to the, the king of Edom and he says, please let us travel through your land. We won't travel through any field or vineyard or drink any well. We will travel the king's highway. We won't turn to the right or to the left until we have traveled through your territory. But Edom answered him, you will not travel through our land or we will come out and confront you with the sword. And then in verse 21, it says, Edom refused to allow Israel to travel through their country and Israel turned away from them. Okay, so so what you have here is basically cousins who look at each other and Israel's like, hey, we're we're trying to get to this place where God is sending us. The quickest way is through your land. Can we just walk through? We're not gonna hurt anything. We're not gonna take anything. We just want to take this shorter route. And Edom's like, no, you don't come through our land. You're gonna have to fight for it. And Israel's like, well, God hasn't called us to fight right now. So Israel takes the long route around. Even though they're cousins, there's this conflict, this battle, this constant comparison to one another, which we saw last week. And Edom's animosity created an adversity for God's people, Israel. This is the history that's going on. And then when Babylon came and and conquered Israel, the Edomites took advantage of it. The Edomites didn't come down and, and, and really fight with Babylon. But once Babylon had conquered Israel and started carrying the Israelites out into exile, taking them away from their homeland, taking them back to Babylon, the Edomites saw an opportunity to increase their nation, increase their power, increase their wealth, and they swept in and they attacked Israelite cities. They plundered the cities that had already been devastated and ravaged by the Babylonians, even killing some of the Israelites who resisted them. In Ezekiel chapter 35, verses one through four, uh, Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, face Mount Seir, right? And last week we saw Mount Seir is where Edom, the Edomites live. Face Mount Seir and prophesy against it. Say to it, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am against you, Mount Seir. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolate waste. I will turn your cities into ruins and you will become a desolation. Then you will know that I am the Lord. 
And then in verse 15, you jump down and it says, just as you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it became a desolation, right? Just to kind of translate that into modern language, he says, because you celebrated the fact that Israel was defeated, I will deal with you the same way. I will, you will become a desolation, Mount Seir, and so will all Edom in its entirety. Then they will know that I am the Lord. All right, so again, you've got this conflict. Edom takes advantage of their distant cousins, sweeps in, plunders them, killing some. And God says, Edom, you're gonna pay for what you have done. Obadiah now enters the picture. And he writes in this book of prophecy, he writes about God's impending judgment on Edom, the one we've just read about in Ezekiel 35. And he writes about the the self-aggrandizement of the Edomites. They're so proud of their power, their authority, their strength, that they thought they could do whatever they wanted to do. Their arrogance towards Israel and towards God in the process. And through this writing, through this this prophecy that that Obadiah gives, we're going to be confronted with three realities of our relationship to the Lord. Three realities that we must be aware of lest we fall to the same arrogance, the same pride, and the same destruction as the people of Edom. And the first thing we're going to see is this. Our sin is costly. Obadiah verses 1 through 14 shows us that our sin is costly. If you read through this whole, this all 21 verses, what you find is these first 14 verses contain God's case against the Edomites. It's his case against them for their sins against Israel. Look look down at verse two. God says, speaking to the, the Edomites, he says, look, I will make you insignificant among the nations. You will be deeply despised. Okay, what God's saying here is he says, look, Edomites, Don't miss us. Edomites, pay attention to me. You know what you've done. Now watch what I'm about to do. Pay attention. And then in verse four, God gives his promise of what he's gonna do. This promise to overwhelm the strength and the success of Edom. He says, though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there, I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. You hear his promise? He says, though you seem to soar like eagles, you have this pride, you have this arrogance, you think you are mighty, you think you are strong because of what you have done, because of what you have accomplished, because of your success, because of your control. You think that puts you in a good place? Good for you. I'm gonna tear you down from there. I know what you've done. You know what you've done. Now watch. And then verse 10 through 14, God's gonna declare Edom's arrogance and rejection of their grace towards Israel. Read this with me, verses 10 through 14. It says, you will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother, Jacob. On the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth while foreigners entered his city gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. 
Do not enter my people's city gates in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster and do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the crossroads and cut off their fugitives and do not hand over their survivors in the day of their distress. You see, hear what God's saying? God's saying, hey, don't do this. <laughs> but what he's saying is you've already done this. This is what has already happened. This is how the Edomites treated their, their distant relatives, the Israelites, God's chosen people. And God says, this is not the way that you live. This is not the way you act towards my people or towards me. And because of that, I am gonna tear you down. Edom used the opportunity of Israel's defeat to take advantage for their own gain. And what Edom forgot in this moment was that while Israel was disgraced by the Babylonians, God was not in disgrace. And God would still deal with their sins. What we see from this is the Edomites, right? They may have looked at what they were doing. I don't, I, I can't, I can't say that I talked to any of these people and I know exactly what they were thinking. But when you read the stories, Edom kind of looks down and goes, hey, Israel's been defeated. Let's take advantage of this, right? We didn't attack God's people, we didn't revolt against God. We just took advantage of the situation. But see, the Edomites forgot that there was no sin that they could commit against their brothers, Israel. There was no sin they could have in their lives that would not exact a price. And a price that God would demand from the Edomites. For us, sitting in this room, we too must remember that there is no sin that will not exact its price in our faith, in our bodies, and in our relationships. There is no sin. I'm not talking about the big stuff. I'm not talking just about the little stuff. I'm saying there is no sin that will not exact a price. You want to tell that little white lie that doesn't really hurt anybody, it just kind of gets you out of a difficult situation. Know that your reputation will suffer. And small white lies compound with small white lies and become greater and greater and greater and they multiply. You want to share that juicy bit of gossip you just picked up? It's not that big a deal. I just want to share this with somebody. Realize that you will hurt others with those words. Realize that you will not be trusted by those who find out when they find out. You want to harbor that one, that one resentment in your heart, right? You forgive everybody. You're a very forgiving, very kind person. You're okay with whatever, you can, you can overcome things. You forgive everybody, but not that one, not that one person for that one thing. It's, and it's just that one thing. You want to harbor that one resentment in your heart. Realize that your understanding of grace will rot inside of you as you harbor that one resentment because it poisons and taints your entire understanding of mercy and grace and forgiveness. Any one of these things, a small white lie, a juicy little bit of gossip, maybe one small resentment that you harbor, they don't seem like big deals, do they? They're not that big a deal. It's not that important. Realize they will always be costly. 
And that cost comes not just in the damage that will be done to others, not just in the damage to the relationships in your life, but it's a damage to your soul because every little, tiny, most insignificant sin you can think of is a rebellion against the sovereign God of the universe. I don't care how small it is. It is your declaration that you are God and God is not. That's not, I don't want to think about that. That's not what I was thinking, right? No, it's not what we're thinking, but it's what we're saying, whether we like it or not. This is why David in Psalm 51, which is one of the most beautiful Psalms, I, I think, in the book of Psalms. Psalm 51, verse four, what does David say? Against you and you alone, I have sinned and done evil in your sight. He's speaking to the Lord. And again, remember what David has done at this point. He's had an affair with Bathsheba. He's killed her husband and watched their their love child die. David's had some pretty significant consequences from his sins. And yet he says, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. doesn't mean he hasn't sinned against other people. He says, God, against you first and foremost, above everything else, I rebelled against you. I made myself king. I made myself Lord. And for that, I repent. Because David knew that every sin is costly. And for us, our sin is always costly. Are we keenly aware of the prevalence of sinful rebellion in our own hearts? I'm looking out at you guys, and you guys are all amazing people. You are wonderful people. You are kind. You are compassionate. Are you aware of the sinful rebellion at work in your heart? Our sin is costly, but that only scratches the surface here. Because our sin is costly, because our depravity is total. Number two, our depravity is total. Watch how Obadiah continues this in verse 15 and 16. He says, For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. In these two verses here, what we get is God shifting his attention. He's been talking about Edom. He says, watch what I'm going to do, Edom, because of your sin. And then he lays out the destruction and the shame that is going to come upon Edom. And here he, he, he shifts his attention. And there's a, a two-word phrase that comes up twice in these verses. And that is all nations. What does it mean when it says all nations? It means every single person who ever has lived and ever will live. He's talking about us. Right? All nations, it's all inclusive. Verse 15 says the Lord is near and is against all people who oppose his will. Verse 16 then goes on and says the Lord will destroy those who refuse to repent and worship him. So, so what this prophecy is saying is everything that Edom's going through, all the destruction they will face because of their sin, realize this is what your sin deserves as well. This is what you and I deserve. This promise of destruction and shame applies to all sin. 
And all sin includes the very best that you and I have to offer the Lord. It's very easy, isn't it, to miss the full depth of our sin, right? It's so easy to miss the depth of of the depravity of our own sin. Because we're sitting here today and we'll go, well, yeah, I sin. I, I mess up, but I love the Lord, right? So my sin is, it, it's bad, but, but let's not talk about it. And, and after all, at least I'm better than, right? And you fill in the blank with whoever you want to fill in the blank with, because we've all got somebody that we fill in that blank with. Right? Well, at least I'm not that bad. Because we are exceptional, at maximizing the sins of others while minimizing, or at worst, just completely dismissing our own sins. Maybe it's just me. You guys don't do this, okay? I'm just speaking for myself here. We are exceptional at maximizing everybody else's sin and minimizing our own, right? Because I'm not that bad. Yeah, I mess up, but they're worse. This is not a new thing. Jesus talks about this in, in Luke chapter 18. If you remember Luke chapter 18, verse 10 through 14, Jesus tells this story of of two men who go to pray. And he he says this, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Remember the Pharisees are the, the, the good guys, the best of the best. They know the law, they're obedient, they nail it. They got this religious stuff down. The tax collectors are wicked enemies of Israel. They've turned their back on their own nation. So these two guys go to pray. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. He's doing really good. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee, he would have told you, yeah, I need to be forgiven for sins but I'm good, so it's not that big a deal. The tax collector knew the depth of his depravity. See, the reality is our depravity is total, it is relentless, it is astonishingly complete. Do me a favor. This is the dreaded congregational participation, but it's super simple, right? Look to your right. Did you first have to like check, make sure which one was right? Okay, now look to your left. person sitting on your right and sitting on your left is just as broken and depraved and sinful as you are. We all have different sins. We all have different struggles in our lives. But the best we have to offer deserves the same consequence. Destruction, shame, and rejection. I love the way Jonathan Edwards writes it. He says, I contribute nothing to my salvation except the sin which makes it necessary. Listen, if you cannot identify 
the best you have to offer with what we read in verses 15 and 16 of Obadiah, then you are in a dangerous place because you have believed a lie that Satan is selling you to lull you into a spiritual apathy that keeps you from running after Jesus with all you have because it's only by recognizing the fullness of our depravity that we realize that Jesus is the only thing that can save us, the only one who can redeem us. And he is everything and the only thing that we need. Listen, do we grasp on a, on a concrete level the desperate nature of our own hearts? In Obadiah, verses 1 through 16, we get this ancient pride and, and betrayal of Edom, of Esau's great, wealthy, powerful, influential nation but we get that as a picture of the pride and betrayal in our own hearts. Okay, I've been really hard on us for 24 minutes. But know that there is hope. There is hope. Our sin is costly and our depravity is total. But that means that our salvation is glorious. Our salvation is glorious. In the rest of this, this, this book, we, we praise God that among so many other things, when God points out our sin, when God points out our depravity, when God points out our brokenness, he never points us there and defines all the consequences and then says, hey, good luck. Try to figure out how to get out of this. God always shows us the depth of our brokenness so that he can display the glorious nature of his offer of redemption. And the same is true in the final verses of Obadiah. Watch verses uh, 17. Verse 17 through 21. It says, But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire and the house of Joseph a burning flame, but the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survivors will remain in the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. People of the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess the territories of Ephraim and of Samaria. Well, Benjamin will possess Gilead. The exiles of the Israelites who are in Halah and who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharat, will possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion and will rule over the hill country of Esau, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. It starts in verse 17. And the first word we get in verse 17 is what? But, but that spectacularly glorious biblical word, but yes, all of this stuff, your sin is costly, your depravity is total, you are lost by your own devices. There's no way you can make yourself good enough to come back to God. Yes, all that is true, but, but God redeems his children. Verse 18 says the house of God's people will thrive while the wicked are destroyed. 
This is God giving an act of his ridiculous grace for the sake of his resplendent glory. Verse 19 through 21 is this joyous celebration of those who are redeemed by God. You go through all of these, these, these family members in the house of Israel and how they will reign, how they will rule. And remember, this is a people who's just been carried off into exile. They've been beaten. They've been downtrodden. God says, no, 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 but don't worry. You are my children and I will deliver you. Love the way this book ends, right? But the kingdom will be those who work really hard at it. But the kingdom will belong to those who know the most Bible verses. But the kingdom will belong to those who have been in the church the longest. But the kingdom will belong to those who seem the nicest, as long as you don't get on their bad side. No, the kingdom will belong to the Lord. It is not your kingdom. It is not my kingdom. It is the Lord's kingdom. He is the one who redeems. He is the one who saves. He is the one who buys us back for the sake of his glory. Okay, you want a really simple application to this entire book. And it is super simple. You want to know what this means, how you take this out and put this to work in your life this week? Well, here it is. We are rebellious people with depraved hearts whose best efforts deserve divine rejection and retribution. And so we must in every moment with every thought, with every word, with every deed, we must in every moment rejoice in and respond to the glorious grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. we truly understand what God speaks to us through Obadiah here, we have no choice but to celebrate and rejoice in every single moment of our life. No matter how good, no matter how bad, no matter how ugly the current situation seems, we rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ because we have a God who created the heavens and the earth. A God who nothing but a word from his mouth spoke everything into being and created mankind, created you and me to live with him in perfect harmony, in the perfect, perfect existence of the Garden of Eden where there was no pain, where there was no suffering, where even work was easy. And what did we choose to do? We chose to rebel. Adam and Eve said, no, 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 God, our way is better. We're gonna go our way. And since then, you and I have been making the exact same decision over and over and over again in our lives. We've chosen rebellion over surrender and sacrifice. And what that means is that God should look at, on us and go, you know what, fine, do your thing. See how that works. And he should have left us alone, but he didn't. He chose to love us and he chose to send his son, Jesus Christ, to be born in a manger in Bethlehem, to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, to rise victoriously over sin and death so that you and I could be redeemed, could be restored to that perfect relationship with our perfect heavenly father. Man, we don't deserve any of that. And yet our God has loved us so much that he saved us. If our thoughts are not drawn to that amazing reality with every single breath we breathe in and every breath we breathe out, then the truth is we haven't fully grasped the gospel. 
We like to think we get it, don't we? Yeah, I know the gospel. I know, I know the story of God. I know Jesus. That's great. We like to think we know it. You might even like to complain that I tell you about it every single week. But there's a reason because you and I honestly don't get it. We get a little bit of it. And hopefully as we walk with the Lord in our lives, we get it more and more and more. But if we truly grasped the fullness of the gospel, every aspect of our lives would look incredibly different than it does right now. To truly celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ would remove all fear, all bitterness, all pride, all arrogance, all harshness, all selfish ambition, all rude behavior, all idolatry of every kind, and anything else that is unworthy of God's presence from our lives. It would instead replace every thought, every word, and every deed with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't know about you, I'm not there yet. Some days I feel like I'm a long ways off. But I know I'm not there yet because I fail to fully grasp the gospel. So what do we do? So what do we do? We continually preach, speak, and remind our own hearts of the gospel of God's glorious grace through Jesus Christ. Every time we start to see that old nature, we start to see that power of the flesh cropping up in us, that ill will, that complaint, that judgment, that selfish desire, whatever the sin is, regardless of how big or small it may be, we learn to speak the gospel over it, to acknowledge that sin as evidence of our own deserved destruction and a reminder of our undeserved grace received from our God. You'll never hear me say, accept your sin because it's okay to sin. No. but we must understand that as long as we live this side of eternity, as long as we are bound in this human flesh, we will battle with that sin. You will continue to fall short. We will continue to fail. And that stinks. But it also is a constant reminder of how amazing God's grace is. And every time we sin, we repent. We turn away from that sin. We turn back to our perfect heavenly father. It should just drop us to our knees in gratitude that he doesn't just kick us to the curb. But he wraps his arms around us, draws us close, offers us the forgiveness that only he can offer. We say we understand the gospel, but do our lives reflect that we have? Has the power of the gospel pushed out the fruit of the old self and drawn us closer and closer and closer and closer to the fruit of God's spirit? <laughs>
as we rejoice and celebrate in the love, the grace, and the mercy that we receive through Jesus Christ. We can live lives that seem full of success, where we control all the outcomes and, and all, the, all the variables, and we feel very secure about who we are and where we're at. I, that was Edom's story. That was Esau's family's story. But when we do that, we know that we live with a false sense of security and a false sense of fulfillment, and we will leave ourselves destined for the fire and the ashes that became of Edom. It's an immense reminder that the sinful rebellion we carry in these fleshly bodies is costly because the depravity is total. But church, let us, above all else, thank God for his glorious salvation. We need to understand sin. We need to understand our depravity. But man, it should just explode with gratitude and joy and celebration because of the salvation we receive. Amen? Amen. Let us never forget how little we have earned and how much less we deserve. But let us never forget how incredible it is to be saved not by our own kind deeds or good intentions, but by the body, the blood, and the redemption of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for who you are. And Lord, for those of us who've known you and and loved you and served you, it seems sometimes the longer we walk with you, the easier it is to forget how amazing your grace is we gain a a better intellectual sense of it. But we can become callous to the heart of it. And Lord, as we live in this world, a world that at every turn is going to look at us and say, well, people are good and you're a good person. If there is a God, surely he'll he'll like you. (laughs) It sounds nice, but it's a lie that damns us to hell. Because, Lord, we, at our best, have nothing but filthy rags to present to you. And yet you, by your goodness, your love, your grace, your mercy, you have taken care of everything that needs to be done. You have paid our penalty, paid our price with the blood of Jesus Christ so that we might walk back into your presence and celebrate as children of the Most High God that we get to be a part of your kingdom. That we get to be a part of your family. Lord, we're grateful that we receive that gift 
not because of who we are, what we've done, but because of your love. Lord, we love you. In your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.